welcome to a brand new series in History Pop called History Bites, in a cool way, where we're going to talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise, uh, but we're going to be focusing on smaller bits of information so that way we have more frequent updates, uh, and these will hopefully come in between our regularly scheduled programming. So our next regularly scheduled program is going to be continuing with the medievalisms, or whatever time period is, of Disney, and I'm debating between two different uh, properties, one's a franchise technically, um, in the Disney universe. So debating between the Studio Ghibli production of Mononoke Hime, or Princess Mononoke, or Frozen, because honestly, I really want to see the second one, and I haven't yet. So we're figuring out what we're going to be doing for next week. Ha <laughs> uh, But this week, I thought I would talk about something that kind of happened on this day, or close to it, uh, several hundred years ago. So stop me if you've heard about this in our history bite. <laughs> uh, Lady Jane Grey. She is a controversial figure in English history. You either love her or hate her. I don't know anyone who actually hates her. Most people just feel bad for her. Uh, basically, Lady Jane Grey was a claimant to the throne. So, after Henry VIII dies, he's an old man, not doing great. He, in his mind, has one legitimate child. Now, luckily, that legitimate child is a boy named Edward, who will take the throne as Edward VI. Uh, and he is the product of the third marriage of Henry VIII with Jane Seymour, who Henry also thought was his first legitimate wife, which I'm like, ugh, and people had to go along with it. But anyway, but he had two illegitimized daughters who had been legitimate at the time of their births, Mary and Elizabeth. Mary had been born in 1516, and Elizabeth had been born in 1533. So by the time Henry dies in 1547, little Eddie is pretty darn young. Uh, and Elizabeth is, obviously she's in her teens, and Mary is honestly an adult. <laughs> and she had been trained from birth to be the Princess of Wales. She actually went out and ruled Wales for a while, but that's beside the point. So, at this point in time, what's going on in England is we have a lot of pushback against and for the Reformations. And so we have Protestantism, semi-Protestantism, actually one of the things that I love and I'm going to steal from one of the professors that I had in English history, talked about how the church in Henry's England, Henrikian reforms, was basically Catholic light. It had all of the pomp and circumstance of Catholicism, but none of the masses. Ha <laughs> uh, But anyway, so we have Catholicism light in under Henry VIII, but his son has been raised in the Reformed faith, whereas Henry was defender of the faith for uh, writing a defense of the seven sacraments against Martin Luther. So Henry had been hardcore Catholic for the longest time, and then sort of kind of switched when it was convenient for him and he had a crisis of, not faith, but uh, a crisis of conscience in dealing with his marriage with Catherine. <clears throat> convenient. But Henry had shifted the church slightly towards uh, the Reformed faith, but his son had been raised from birth in the Reformed faith, just for the most part like Elizabeth had. And so they both were 
Protestant leaning. Now, Edward took it and ran with it. He, if you want to be not necessarily the most accurate, but the most memorable about it, he was totes Protestant. If you imagine a pendulum swinging back and forth, one end being extreme Protestantism, the other being extreme Catholicism, Henry is kind of closer in the middle, about slightly closer, honestly, I would put it to the Catholicism. Elizabeth is halfway between uh, extreme Protestantism and Catholicism, and Edward's way out there on the Protestantism side. And actually, I would put Mary kind of halfway between extreme Catholicism and uh, the light Catholicism light of Henry. So we have a whole spectrum with these Tudor rulers. And so Edward was super Protestant. And once it became apparent that he was dying, uh, he was super young, 15, 16, uh, he realized that next in line for the throne, according to his father's will, was his older sister Mary, who, as I just said, was pretty Catholic, or at least too Catholic for Edward and for a lot of the leading nobles in England. And so they were afraid of what would happen when Mary would take the throne. So Edward wrote up a little device. Now, it could be, it could have been done under the heavy suggestions or duress uh, by the um, suggestions of the Duke of Northumberland, who had been kind of his protector at that particular point in time after the execution of his uncle. But anyway, so we have John Dudley, who is the Duke of Northumberland, who's kind of in charge of things right now. And he's part of making this device, this little device added to the will of Henry VIII and for Edward VI. And basically what it says is that, okay, Mary and Elizabeth both, even though Elizabeth is Protestant, we she's kind of a wild card, we don't know what she's gonna do, both of them <clears throat> out of the succession. But then who's gonna be taking over? Henry VIII only had three legitimate-ish children. So then the throne would go not to the heirs of Henry's older sister, uh, Margaret, but his younger sister, Mary. We have a lot of Mary Tudors. Um, And at that particular point in time, then, the... Now, Mary had uh, children, and her eldest surviving child was Francis Brandon. And Francis was married to Lord Grey, so she was Lady Frances Grey, I guess, technically. But even though she would have been next in line for the throne, little Eddie wanted his playmate and BFF, Lady Jane Grey, Frances's eldest daughter, to be queen after him. So he dies. Umberland uh, takes the uh, tower and proclaims Lady Jane Grey as queen. Now, there's honestly a whole lot we don't know about Lady Jane Grey. She could have been totally into it. She could have protested. There's not a whole lot of primary search documentation talks about us. Now, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to, and I really am excited for it. Crown of Blood by Nicola Tallis. She is a fantastic historian who focuses on those figures that are controversial in English history. She actually just put out a biography of Lady Margaret Beaufort, who is Henry VII's mother, and I'm working through that one right now. Um, But yeah, so Nicola Tallis is a fantastic historian, and she wrote a really big biography of uh, Lady Jane Grey, so I'm looking forward to digging into that here soon. But anyway, so before I've read that, uh, the impressions that you get of Lady Jane Grey is that, honestly, she took the crown, wrote proclamations, she actually signed them in her own hand as Jane the Queen, and 
she refused to let her husband Guildford Dudley, John Dudley's son, to have the crown matrimonial. So that would have meant that he would have ruled instead of her. And she's like, haha, no. She was a very extremely well-educated young woman. Uh, honestly, I would put her in running with Elizabeth, maybe having her edge out Elizabeth, as one of the most book smart, uh, easily sponge-like person for knowledge of the Tudor century, basically. She was incredibly talented at picking up knowledge. And she was also fervently Protestant, just like Edward. So she made a natural choice for him to choose as his next queen. So little Eddie dies, Jane takes the crown. Mary gets wind of this and is pissed. Understandably so. She had been raised from birth to believe that she was going to be queen at some point, or at least heir to the throne at some point. Um, and according to her father's will, she was next after Edward. And Edward, uh, now Edward hadn't had the chance to put his device, his handwritten device, through Parliament to have it have the force of law, whereas Henry VIII had with his will. So Mary musters up forces and is an inspiring military leader. And even though she doesn't actually have to fight a single battle, just how well disciplined her troops are and how she was able to delegate the responsibilities of running and drilling and training these troops intimidated the crap out of all the people surrounding Jane. And one by one, they fled to Mary. And Jane was, for the most part, then left alone. Now, Mary was able then to take London and captured Jane and her husband, Guildford. Now, Mary didn't want to have them executed. She wanted to have John Dudley executed. He was the ringleader. He was the one in charge. And Mary tried to offer clemency to Lady Jane. And but Jane refused to convert to Catholicism, which Mary was bringing back to England and uh, making her uh, ministrations towards the Pope. And then she continued, Jane continued to be a figurehead and centers of other rebellions. And yeah, she refused to recant her Protestantism and wanted to die as a martyr. And she did. And so it's really hard to think about what sort of decisions Jane had to make she died when she was 15 or 16 years old, so pretty darn young. And she chose to die as a martyr. And, yeah, so, but Jane is known to history as the nine days queen, but as Nicola Talis points out, she was actually queen for 13 days, not nine. <laughs> but nine days has a romantic ring to it. Um, and, yeah. So that actually, her execution was on February 12th, 1554. So that's kind of a close to on this day. Not quite romantic for Valentine's Day. But I also wanted to use this to kind of lead into a discussion, a uh, short discussion, on how the English determined who their next ruler was. This is something that I gave a lot of thought to because I taught a course on it, basically. Uh, misbehaving monarchs and, rebe and revolutions and revolutions and misbehaving monarchs are a lot of how <laughs> the next monarch is determined and it's not always genetics it's not always bequests 
Uh, there's actually several different ways of doing it, one that's been used a lot more than others. So general rule of thumb is male line, male preference primogeniture. So if you're a king and you have three sons, your eldest son is going to be king after you, typically. If you have a daughter, a son, and then a daughter, your son is going to be king, and then your daughters will be queen after him. Unless your son has children, then they get to take over the line of succession. And so basically it's whoever has the sons, and whoever is the eldest. Those are the ways determined through male preference primogeniture. And actually that rule has been changed in England in the last few years, uh, now with the birth of Princess Charlotte. Uh, so it's now absolute primogeniture, so it's a lot easier to go through. So instead of giving preference to the boys, it's whoever is eldest and the next eldest and the next eldest, uh, regardless of sex. So that's really exciting. Uh, the other ways that the English were able to determine who their next ruler was was through bequest, kind of like what Edward tried to do with Lady Jane Grey. He tried to give the throne to her. And sometimes that worked, usually not. Uh, then, of course, there's also Parliament getting in on it, which we can talk about here in a sec, and then the Rite of Conquest, which was how the Tudor dynasty even started, because while Henry VII, uh, Henry VIII's dad, had some royal blood, he was an heir to the Lancastrian uh, line, he was not the highest up in terms of royal blood, but he, he won the crown by defeating Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. And he actually never claimed it through his wife's bloodline either, because Elizabeth of York, Henry VII's wife, had a much better claim to the throne. But he always claimed it through conquest rather than by right of his wife and having married her. So looking at from William I, who stole it by conquest, uh, he bequeathed it, not to his eldest son, who was uh, Robert Curthos? No. Uh, but Robert, he had bequeathed the Duchy of Normandy, which at the time was seen as a more prestigious chunk of land, to his eldest son, and gave England to his middle son, who became William II. William II died in a tragic hunting accident. I don't know if you can see my air quotes. Um, and the throne then went to his younger brother, Henry, who became Henry I. Uh, after Henry, Henry had a son and a daughter. Henry's son died, so it should have been Henry's daughter, right? No. Henry, before he died, had thrown together all the nobles and said, hey, you're going to support my daughter, Matilda. She's awesome. She's been the Holy Roman Empress. She knows what she's doing. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 sure, no problem, Henry, we gotcha. And then he dies, and they promptly pick her cousin, Stephen, to be king. And so Stephen tries to take over, and then there's the what is known as the Anarchy, a war between Matilda and Stephen for the right to the throne. And then eventually what they decide is that, because uh, they both kept on capturing each other and having a bunch of stalemates that Matilda's like, fine, you can have the throne until you die, but then my son inherits, not yours. And Stephen's like, okay. And so then that's how we get Henry II. Henry II then passes the throne on to his eldest son. So we're seeing this male line primogeniture here. Uh, well, his eldest surviving son, who then passes it on to his younger brother, John. Uh, 
So, because Richard didn't have any children. So John does have kids. So we're seeing this line here of both bequests and a male line primogeniture, which for the most part continues on as the male line primogeniture until we get to Richard II. After Richard II is forced to abdicate the throne through right of conquest by Henry IV. Henry IV, his cousin, usurps the throne. And he claims it because he's got the bloodline. And one second, I'm going to have some tea here. But, and he does. He is actually of the same generation as Richard II, but is further down the line. Richard II's dad, who was Edward the Black Prince, was the eldest son of Edward III. Henry IV's dad was John of Gaunt, who was a, was he John of Gaunt? Now I'm curious. I'm reasonably certain it's John of Gaunt. Henry the Fourth, do, do, do. Henry the Fourth. Yep, Henry Bolingbroke. We look at him. Yeah, John of Gaunt. Yes, I'm good. <laughs> Who was the fourth son of Edward the Third? So he's a bit further down the line. But he's like, well, I have that same amount of royal blood technically as Richard. So, and he's being a bad king. He's not taking good advice from good counselors. He has weird favorites. We don't like him, and he's all foofy. So we're gonna depose him. And then he's going to get disappeared in prison, never come back, and I'm going to be king. And that's what happens. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so we have the right of conquest there, which is the first, I guess, technical right of conquest after uh, William the Conqueror back in 1066. And then we have Henry V, and then we have Henry VI, but then we also have the Wars of the Roses, which is basically just going back and forth between cousins. And it's a really not fun time between Henry VI and Edward IV. And then we finally have uh, Edward IV winning, but then it goes to uh, his younger brother, even though he had sons. And then we have the princes in the tower, all that jazz. We finally get to Henry VII with his right of conquest. So we have, up until this point, lots and lots of uh, male line primogeniture and a decent amount of conquest. That's generally how the English choose their rulers, through conquest and through blood. Whoever is the closest in proximity to the current ruler in blood basically gets it, especially if you're a dude and have a dick. That's how that works. And so that's why Mary should have been next in line for the throne after Edward. Edward wasn't old enough yet. He wasn't technically an adult. He was 15, 16, and he had been ruling with the Regency Council, even though the council, he had dismissed the council and said, I'm old enough um, to make my own decisions. And yeah, <laughs> we saw how well that worked out. Uh, but he didn't have the force of will to be able to push through his little device just like Henry VIII did with his. And so Mary had the legal right of succession underneath Henry VIII's will. She had the bloodline connections and she had right of conquest because all these other people surrendered to her. Now Mary didn't have any children so the throne goes to her sister Elizabeth. And after Elizabeth we have a weird wonky succession where it goes up and we ignore Henry VIII's will because uh, Henry VIII had wanted the heirs of his younger sister, Mary, who stayed in England after she was the French queen for a few months, um, 
to be able to claim the throne ahead of the heirs of his older sister, Margaret, who had gone to Scotland. But that's exactly what happened. So we go up the line and find the next actual line of heirs, and that is from Margaret's line in Scotland. And we get That's how we get James I of England. Things go smoothly for a little bit until James's son Charles gets executed, and then his son takes the throne a few years later. Uh, now Charles II doesn't have any kids, legitimate kids. He has a crap ton of illegitimate kids, but he has no legitimate children with his wife, Catherine of Baganza. And I'm actually having Queen Catherine tea right now, so come on, honey and sons. And that's when we get one of the most interesting ways that the English choose their monarchs is by this point in time. So by the time we have the accession of Charles II, which is 1660, uh, then we have his brother, James II, in 1685. England is really, really Protestant. The years of James I and Charles I and the Protectorate honestly really swung the kingdom all the way to the Protestant mark, at least in terms of its government. There were obviously still more moderates and things like that. But for the most part, they were, even if they weren't extremely Protestant, they were anti-Catholic. And Charles II on his deathbed, Catholic. James II all the time, Catholic. And the ruling elites were really scared of what would happen, not only if he became king, because he did, but if he had any heirs, any sons, because James II had two daughters from his first marriage, Mary and Anne. From his second marriage, he ended up having a son. Now, technically that son should have been the next king, but Parliament decided that that wasn't going to fly. And so Parliament said, hey, William, who is the husband of Mary, and also a bloodline claimant for the throne, tell you what, y'all come over from the Netherlands and invade. And then you can be our king and queen. How's that sound? And William's like, this is a great idea. I'm behind this. Mary's like, I don't know. He's my dad. I don't know if I want to depose him. Yes, I do. So they did. And so Parliament invited a foreign ruler to invade and overthrow the king, which they did. So yeah, English succession is weird. And it's full of twists and turns, which is honestly probably one of the reasons why so many people are super interested in it. But anyway... I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because I saw a post on Reddit, because of course that's how that works, uh, of someone who was writing that Mary was just murdering, like she had legitimately murdered Lady Jane Grey, and Jane was so innocent in all of this stuff, and she had nothing to do with anything, and Mary was just full of perfidious and... Uh, horrible intentions and, and I'm like wow that's a bunch of Protestant propaganda Mary has suffered enough in terms of her reputation over history so yeah let's work on really looking at Mary again thank you very much and so that really honestly ticked me off and I had one of those moments where you're like someone is wrong on the internet and 
that inspired this. So just talking a little bit about the succession. And for, honestly, for the most part, the English succession is that male preference primogeniture. Uh, but every now and then we do have the bequesting thing, but that was much more in the medieval uh, times in England and the Plantagenet dynasties. Uh, use of the crown when there were other territories underneath that plantagenet family tree canopy that were much more prestigious and so you didn't want to have your eldest son ruling england it's some weird backwater that's not france and uh, during these times you know when we have uh william the second and henry the first and all of them ruling we have a decent amount of territories in France that really are richer and have a much more developed culture, etc., etc. And so England wasn't seen as this great thing to have. Eventually it does become that, though, and the French territories go away. But it generally does follow the rule of thumb of male preference primogeniture. And in this article that was completely and really wrong she was writing about how edward got to choose his heir and i'm like no that that's not how that works <laughs> and that was basically why we went through not all of english history but some of the major highlights of how the succession actually works so thank you for joining me for our first ever history bites <laughs> or history bites I'm guessing it's both. It's fine. Uh, but I hope that this has been fun for you. And if you have any other things that you would like to hear about in History Bites that I can attempt to do, let me know. I had fun doing this. And it also reminded me of getting to be in front of the classroom and lecture and teach again. So this was super fun. <sighs> anyway, I hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day and that uh, you stay safe, stay well, stay tuned. This has been Courtney for History Pop, History Bites. Thank you so much. It has truly been a pleasure. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.